welcome to the Autumn History Podcast. I'm Emily Newmeyer. In this episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Robin Dora Radway, who is a professor of history at Central European University. We sit down to talk about her current research about Habsburg friendship albums, album Amicorum, and the important role they played in the diplomatic circles of Ottoman Istanbul. And what they have are basically Facebook for the early modern period. As we discuss, these works are significant in that they are some of the earliest examples of what are known as costume images from the early modern world. I mean, these are the earliest albums of this type. And in that sense, what's interesting about them is that it's early on in the history of costume albums. I mean, the first ones are really developed in the mid-16th century. The earliest of these paper collections are also mid-16th century, and the earliest examples of uh, Alba Amicorum's, these signatures, are also in the mid-16th century. So this is really sort of three genres that are coming into their own at this time. All this and more, coming up. I know that you're uh, here at Central European University. You're teaching Habsburg history. You're you're a historian of the Habsburg Empire. But your current research brings you to Istanbul. Yes, it does. Um, so I was uh, trained as both a um, sort of Central Europeanist or a early modern Europeanist, and um, also trained in Ottoman history a bit. And so my current research and also my previous research as well have always brought me to Istanbul. I've been more interested in the border necessarily than Istanbul itself, but uh, these these objects that I'm currently working on are very much bringing the world of the Habsburgs into the Ottoman Empire. And you're not working on Istanbul in general. Your your research has taken you to a very specific place in Istanbul. Where is that? So this is a building that's across the street from the Grand Market, so from the um, Kapalitasha, and it's also across the street from the Chamberletash, so the, the burnt column, and it is a two-story structure where the Habsburg ambassadors and really anyone coming from lands ruled by the Habsburgs would live when they were in Istanbul in the second half of the 16th century through the 17th century, sort of mid 17th century. And did they have a specific name for this house? The people coming from um, Habsburg territory themselves often referred to it as their inn. Um, it was called the German house as well. So the, the Ottomans referred to it as the Nemjehane, um, also as the Eljehane, so as the, the house of the ambassador. It was about one kilometer away from the Topkapa Palace itself. And that made it a sort of very interesting place because unlike the other ambassadors who lived in Galata, this is very close to the heart of central administration in the Ottoman Empire. And so they they would do is from their windows, which looked out onto what is today Divan Yolu Jadisi, they would see the processions of the Sultan as he went to Friday prayers at 
the mosque at Sultan Suleiman's mosque, for example, or going to the old palace from the Topkapı. Uh, there would also be people coming from the Balkan hinterlands and making their way past, often with groups of captives. And so they would show them off as they walk by the house. And this was very important because the people living in this house would look down onto the street and see these movements. It's interesting because you mentioned sort of them having the ability to look out onto the street, but also is there a sense of the location of this place that they're also being contained and under surveillance? Yes, absolutely. So they were assigned to have two janissaries standing outside the house at all times. Nobody could leave the house, according to sort of complaints, regular complaints by the people living there. Uh, they couldn't actually leave the house without a janissary guard with them. And occasionally they would get their windows boarded up. So you do have um, descriptions of the ambassadors ex- complaining that when the situation between the two empires became more complicated, you'd also occasionally get them under house arrest, which would mean that they were not allowed to leave at all. Uh, this happened in the 1550s. Uh, and then it happened in the 1590s, right before the outbreak of the Long Turkish War. Um, but I mean, there are moments there where they can actually move out and, and around the city quite a bit um, with their Janissary guards. They go on field trips to the Black Sea. They describe sort of um, taking trips over to Galata, where they had a lot more sort of opportunities to move around because this was a Christian space in a lot of areas. But definitely within Constantinople, Uh, itself, sort of old Constantinople. It was a very interesting interaction with their environment. How Do you have a sense of how big this house was and how many people were living in it at any given time? So the house could accommodate up to about 100 people, but that would be a very tight squeeze. Uh, this would happen often if there were two, because the ambassadors would overlap often for at least a couple of months, sometimes as much as a year and a half. And so it had um, quite a few rooms. I think it was around sort of over 45 rooms. And on the upper story is only where they would live. And it could be up to two people, sometimes even three people per room. And they were quite small. The rooms then looked out onto the courtyard, um, but also had a window outwards onto the street below. And quite a few people would live in there. So there were certain rooms that were reserved for the ambassador. There was a room for the artist. There was a room for the barber. There was a room for the the chaplain, so the priest. And a few others had their own individual rooms where they could also practice their trades, whatever that was. Uh, but a lot of the noblemen who would just come through on their way for sort of their on their way to a pilgrimage, for example, mm-hmm. they would often double up in a room. It's a very interesting space where you have individuals coming from all over lands that are ruled by the Habsburgs, and they're coming to this house, and this is where they are able to stay. And it's a caravanserai, so I mean, it's a place where you would regularly have people coming through. So you mentioned cooks and an artist and a clergyman. Are these are these all all the, even like the sort of service workers? Were they also all foreigners? Were they brought? from the Habsburg Empire, or were there locals working inside as well? So occasionally you would get a local working there, but there was usually as a translator. Uh, But for the most part, the individuals are coming from all over Habsburg territory instead. And that includes individuals like the cook, for whom it's a very interesting space because they're not sort of 
immediate members of Habsburg lands in the sense that they are not noblemen. Mm-hmm. Um, and they don't usually have this strong connection in sort of their daily lives to what it means to be a Habsburg uh, subject, if that if we can even call it that. Right. Um, but in this moment, when they're all mixing in this house and getting to know each other, then you really see that come out in the types of um, objects that are circulating in this house. What are some of the objects that are coming out of the house that this kind of material culture um, that's drawn you to this project? Yeah, so I started this project initially looking at costume albums because there are quite a few costume albums that traditionally are associated with a few of the ambassadors. Um, and they're very important for the future of costume albums. So these are 16th century albums that then get copied quite a bit. Uh, they get made into prints and then spread widely and make a huge impact on 17th, 18th and 19th century costume album images. And so initially I was looking at the ones that were uh, owned by the ambassadors, but I quickly realized as I was looking at some of these albums and tracing other sort of footnotes that I found them, these images wound up in other collections. And these collections are actually sort of friendship albums. Uh, they're called Alba Amicorum and or, or Stammbücher in German. And what they have are basically Facebook for the early modern period. Um, So you have a book that you would carry around with you and you would have your friends sign it. Often this was used when you go to the university. So this was a type of object that was really sort of grounded in a university setting initially in the 1530s, 1540s. And it quickly became something you would take on trips with you. So you could sort of have people that you've met along the way sign this album and you could look back on it and see what you've done and show your friends what you've done. And what turns out is that there's actually a lot of these albums from the German house. So a lot of men would bring these with them. And I have about 25 to 30 of these albums that were in the German house. And many of them include costume album images of the types that end up in these uh, more high quality costume album books that are made supposedly for the ambassadors. Do you get the sense that in terms of the costume album images that people are not only purchasing them, but they're also trading them amongst themselves as kind of like a friendly exchange of objects? I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, at school, we all our big thing was was trading stickers. And yeah, that, <laughs> you know, if you really wanted this one sticker, you'd be haggling and negotiating over this deal for weeks at a time. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I think that's a that's a key element of this because it's not as though everyone has a full set of these images. Um, it depended on the individual. Also, the quality of each image is very different. So sometimes you have individuals who will, for example. The Cook has the largest album. Really? The Cook's album is a very interesting one. He has over 60 images in it, including several copies of an image within the album. Mm -hmm. So it's often what seems to happen is that you have amateur artists copying the the works of real sort of trained professional artists living in the house and copying them into their albums. Uh, You also have unfinished images, which might have been lying around, and then somebody decided to take that and incorporate it into their album. Um, So you have a set of unfinished images in an album in Copenhagen, for example, Mm -hmm. that are very interesting because they're connected to these much 
more complete finished albums that were made for ambassadors. I, I think not everybody who's listening might uh, be familiar with the genre of costume albums. Could you give a more general idea of what, what those are? Yeah. So costume albums are sort of a group of images that are collected together that portray individuals in a way that shows off their the clothing that they are wearing. What this allows the viewer to do often is to page through a book and see a series of locations or a series of types of idealized types of individuals, often with the names of the location where they come from below and sort of travel or in their armchair where they're sitting at home and experience that sort of exotic encounter with something foreign. There's a lot of discussion of what these costume albums were about and why they were made. And in this case, it's interesting to see where and how people would interact with this and use this. I mean, for some of the ambassadors, like David Ungnad, an, an album was very important for understanding the people you interact with and encounter so that you can then pass this information on to the next ambassador. Mm-hmm. Um, so he collected an album where he had a lot of very detailed notes about what he wanted the future ambassadors to know about every situation that they might encounter. So this was a practical guide mm-hmm. as well for, for certain individuals. brought some images for us to look at and there's two that are you're, you're really excited about so let's look at those uh so yeah this is these two images come from an album in Linz, um and it's an album uh, that was owned by helmhard Haydn von dorf he was working for the resident ambassador joachim von sinsendorf Um, And he was in Constantinople between 1578 and 1581. And during this time, he had a lot of individuals who came through the house sign his album. And he also has seven coats of arms, which is another very common component of this type of album. And what's most exciting, he has seven very interesting images as well. So seven images, including several costume album-like images. However, they're they're a little bit different. Uh, So some of them are sort of a very classic costume album image. And then some are more related to the signature above it. So, for example, there's this wonderful image of a man in a white turban in a black coat holding up a glass um, of what must be wine. And he signs above, this is actually Ali Bey, and he is the house translator. So he is the dragoman for the house. Uh, This is from 1581, so this is his first year as the dragoman. And he goes on to have quite an illustrious career. Uh, But he signs in German, 
and he signs it as the ambassador or as the ambassador's uh, translator. And it's on the 9th of May in 1581, so shortly after he's been made um, um, made the translator. So who's so who's done the drawing? This 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 is is this a self portrait? Well, this is a great question. I mean, we don't we we don't know. It's probably not a self portrait. Uh, that's very unlikely. You wouldn't have self portraiture um, at this time by these types of individuals within the Ottoman Empire. It can very well be a portrait made by a local artist, though. Uh, we know that Sinzendorf, the ambassador, was collecting an album for himself as well, um, and there were a lot of images circulating at the time in the house. And so there's a good chance that this might actually be a portrait of Ali Bey. Ah, I see. So uh, the other possibility here is that it could be a more generic costume album image that's, you know, that are kind of circulating around. And then this was pulled and said, hey, this kind of looks like you, Ali Exactly, Bey. exactly. Why don't you sign it? Yeah. So that's the other possibility. That's the other possibility. So, I mean, there's other images in this album, for example, that are more of the traditional type of costume image. So this is a on one page. It's a combination of this kind of friendship album, collection of signatures, and a costume album. Yes, image. and it's also a, a paper collection as well. So this mm. is this album in has album. in the album, but this is this is one of these decorated papers as well. This is a fairly plain uh, one. It's a it's a monochrome paper, so it's a yellow color. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think this one has any sprinkles on the other side, but you, often they'll be monochrome with a sprinkle sort of sprinkled gold or silver on the other side. Uh, But this is also um, a a decorated paper album as well. So in some ways, these albums are are kind of like scrapbooks where people are kind of collecting various uh, real pieces of art in terms of these sort of uh, portable pieces of art, like like paper, but also uh, memories, images, signatures. It's kind of a melange. Yeah, there's a few of them that even include travel narratives by the Mm. person who owns it. This isn't as common, but occasionally you do get that. You also get um, sort of poetry written by the person who owns it occasionally. There's a great example of this in the Getty collections. They they bought this not so long ago. It's a wonderful album owned by um, Johann Joachim Prach von Asch, and he has a lot of sort of little poetry that he writes into the decorated spaces on the the folios. So um, into the designs on the, the image itself, he will write a little bit of notes to himself or sort of funny things that he thinks of. There's one page where it's it's a marbled folio, but in one of the lines he writes out that um, that he hopes that your mother, that the woman's mother that he's writing to will become his mother-in-law. Oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they were thinking about women a lot when they were there. Okay, yeah, sure. I mean, this is something we can we can discuss. Um, so women were not in the house. I mean, this was a male space. This was a hundred percent male Strictly. space. It was were these rules imposed by the Habsburgs or by the Ottomans or both? I, mean, I would it's assume sense, it's sort of it's common sense. So yeah. in the 16th century, at least, they're not bringing anyone with them and in, any females with them. And in fact, I mean, most of the ambassadors are not married uh, when they are leave for this trip. 
so it's a house full of young bachelors. <laughs> yeah, which means, you know, that they have interesting um, fantasies about the local women. Um, they are, you know, doing everything in their power to see one. This is sort of, they they constantly write about trying to look over the hedges and oh, no. see a woman. I mean, one of the earliest images from the house is um, by a wonderful artist, Malchai Lorch, and it's over the rooftops of, oh, he's famous. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is where the this is the the artist who does the famous panorama. Exactly. Of okay. But he also has another image. So uh-huh. he also lives in this house, and uh-huh. he has another image from one of the windows when they were locked into the house. So this was when they were under house arrest, and it's it's from one of the windows looking over the houses next door, and of course he looks right into a window where there's a pair of lovers. Um, going at it essentially (laughs) (laughs) and this is in one of his images so it's constantly on their mind that there there are no women around them i'm just curious is it is it terribly difficult to read this this text i mean i'm just looking at i don't i don't read german but this just (laughs) it's not easy um (laughs) it's not easy so i sympathize (laughs) i yeah i mean it's not as bad as ottoman um but it's not easy. So I was uh, lucky enough to have been instructed in paleography at uh, Princeton by Yair Minsker. And he started me on this path. And then you really have to develop a sense for the time period. And what's difficult about these is that they all, everyone has different handwriting. And if you have 150, 300 signatures in an album, it's going to be tough. But there's a lot of people working on these types of albums. And so you've got a lot of help out there, which is really great. So you said you had you're looking at 25 albums, is that right? It's 25 of them that have signatures. There's about 30 others that have images, um, that which are not signatures. And then there's another set of about 40 albums that are just the paper or sort of paper and non, non-Ottoman paper. So I imagine that if you have a series of albums that are roughly coming are being generated from the same place at the same time and the ideas that they're going to be signing each other's books is that you can start to, um, that the same signatures, you'll start to see sort of a cross-referencing among the albums. Absolutely. Is that that happening? Yes, definitely. So what I've been working through is that you've got, with these signatures in these albums, you have certain individuals who become very prominent once you start looking through these albums and organizing the signatures into charts and graphs. And so I've actually been working together with some network scientists here at Central European University in order to try to understand and visualize this in a meaningful way and get a sense of who were these individuals that were signing the most albums. Um, Can we find some patterns about the way people signed? And often we find that these signatures took place either at the beginning when they first arrived um, and they were first getting to know each other, but most often at the end of a trip. Uh, so when they were saying goodbye. Um, other times are sort of big parties at the house when they would all be together sitting around a table. Uh, when somebody special came to visit uh, from another embassy. Um, so that often happens that somebody would come over from Galata and then they would have a big dinner party. Um, also outings. If they went to the Black Sea, they would sometimes take their books along with them and sign them there and then write that they were signing it there and then draw a little picture of something mm-hmm. they saw along the way. But so so in terms of this uh, 
this network science side of things, what's really interesting is that you can then see who are the individuals that um, are most active at a certain time. And then is that reflective of their situation within the house or their, their role within the house? And often it can be tied to it and often it can't. The cook, for example, has a huge collection of signatures, um, which so sort of makes sense. Popular. I mean, it makes sense if you're going mm-hmm. to be going down to the kitchens to hang out with the cook or you could get hungry, then you know, you'll get to know the cook. Um, so people know him and therefore he gets a lot of signatures. What's fascinating, of course, is that the cook himself doesn't sign any albums. So nobody asks the cook to sign his album. I mean, I guess, I guess there, is there a question of, is there any kind of possibility that, um, he would be illiterate, like he wouldn't be able to write. Is that no? I think that's. I mean, I mean if he has a book that he's he has a signing, book, he clearly can read. I mean, he's also the the main cook, so mm-hmm. he's the head cook, which means that um, he's also got to work with recipes. Sure. Um, there's a good chance he could read, and then he, mm-hmm. he. I mean, he eventually goes on to a rather illustrious clear career afterwards mm-hmm. as well, um, where he's no longer just a cook, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so a cook isn't just a cook, I guess. Is, yeah. Okay. Um, um, for the most part, there were sort of, you know, stable boys that couldn't read and write, I think, in the house. And you don't usually get their signatures, although we do have, you know, one man who signs just boy, garçon, um, mm-hmm. in, in French. And so this appears occasionally in albums. How we would ever be able to connect them to individuals is, um, it's not really possible. But So there's never any kind of attempt to... Um there's never any kind of attempt to find a way to have illiterate people sign or participate somehow in the book. Like, a, I don't know, like a thumbprint or some kind of like mark, but not not writing, not writing per se. Sometimes you get individuals who will sign for multiple people. Mm-hmm. Um, so that does happen. Or you have somebody who signs for someone else. So it mm-hmm. says, um, right. I had this signed for me. Um, so the, the grammatical structure of the sentence makes it clear that they did not sign themselves. They had somebody write it for them. So this does occasionally happen. And this happens in the broader context of these types of albums as well. So you do see this. I know you're in the middle of, of working on this uh, this sort of digital model. I know you're in the middle of, of really working through this data. But are there any preliminary results that you found surprising? Yeah, uh, so one of them would be that the the people with the highest betweenness centrality, and the bete- betweenness centrality means really that they a lot of the lines cross through them, so that they've signed albums that other people have signed, and they become a sort of central hub in mm-hmm. a network graph. And what I found fa- very interesting and makes a lot of sense in hindsight is that most of these men with the biggest centrality or the, the greatest in between the centrality are the ones who were in charge of practical tasks within the embassy that were very important like writing the um, right like writing the the cipher for the reports that would go back to to be sent back to Vienna and to Prague. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the scribes were very important mm. in this respect. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the ambassadors were asked very frequently to sign albums as well. So the, al- the ambassadors themselves did not own albums that people signed. So they did not collect signatures. Um, so there's, there's definitely also 
as you sort of go along with this type of, uh, of network analysis, you realize that there are certain types of albums that are owned by different types of people. And this is very clear when you start sort of examining this in a network graph way, mm -hmm. so that ambassadors, they only collect costume books. They, for them, it's sort of a social prestige that they don't need, right? So this this a object, a book full of signatures of people they've met, of people they've met is something that you, yeah, a book full of signatures of people you've met is something that you don't necessarily need as an ambassador, but it's something you may want to um, use to help heighten your sense of importance when you go back home to show people that what you've done and who you've met. Whereas the ambassador already knows, I mean, it's fairly obvious that he is an important figure mm -hmm. in this space. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to think of a good analogy, a, a good contemporary analogy of this. I feel like, I don't know. Uh, I mean, it's, it's sort of a, a yearbook, perhaps. Um, so the, there's... There's Poesiebücher that people used actually in Germany and in Austria and mm -hmm. even, I mean, around Europe until very recently. So every time I talk about this, there's always somebody, always somebody who says, I have a book like that at home. Mm -hmm. um, so they, they definitely continued until the 20th century and really then were replaced by social media. So it, it's fewer and fewer people make these kinds of books today. Um, well, I suppose if you're an ambassador today or if you're a diplomat, I mean, it's it's if it's your job to really travel around the world and and meet people that you wouldn't necessarily have like a personal Facebook account like, yeah. "Oh, look at this place I just went." You know, <laughs> you but You might you might keep it for yourself though in your phone yeah, and take photographs. Yeah. But if you're someone who um doesn't travel a lot and this is sort of a once in a lifetime opportunity that you're more likely to more assiduously uh document it and yeah. keep track of it so you can look back on on your trip absolutely there is a lot of research on diplomatic history and examining the role of diplomats and foreigners in the in the ottoman empire and especially in istanbul at the court in, in these kinds of studies, I suppose more traditional sources you would look at are official diplomatic correspondence, things like archival records, things like that. Um, do these albums offer a different point of view? Absolutely. Um, one of the big elements of these albums that you, we would not be able to know about in the regular sources on um, embassies is just the sheer volume of people uh, that are in this house. So... For the albums of this time period, so between the 1560s to 1568s is the first signature, and 1593 is the last signature in this period that I'm studying, and you have 500 individuals signing these albums. Mm. Um, of those, probably about 400 of them were living in the house. And if you look at the official documentation, you don't see these 400 people. Often this is the only proof that they lived in this house for any period of time. Um, and so that really changes the way we think about what an embassy is, who's living in this building, um, how does it function, and um, how can we see this space as also a sort of extraterritorial um, a space of the Habsburgs in some way, right? Um, and you, you really get a better sense of what it meant to be part of this representation of Habsburg power there or Habsburg um, a diplomatic space that is not 
populated by diplomats exclusively. Mm-hmm. So it kind of gives a more more textured, full, a, a fuller picture of the strata of this. It's really a community. Yeah. And that's really, you know, confined by the walls of of this house. Yeah, absolutely. And you don't see these individuals in the documentation of the embassy that's in Vienna. So in the archival materials, you're not going to find most of these individuals. You will find the ambassador, of course, you'll find the scribes, you'll find the messengers often. If something goes wrong, then you'll find some more names about something that happened. There's also, of course, travel logs, and those will list some individuals as well. But even there, it's only perhaps one-tenth of the individuals that are in the house, and you don't realize that until you have these types of albums with these signatures. How big are these albums? Are they all of a rather uniform size, or do they vary? So they're all about a little larger than the size of a hand. Um, you'd need to be able to take them around with you. So it's something you tuck into your pocket. It is, for the most part, they're ones you can tuck, tuck into your pocket, for the ones that have signatures. Um, there's even smaller ones as well that are sort of just a couple of inches. Mm-hmm. And there are also um, much larger ones, and those would be for the ambassadors. So the smaller ones are, gen- those are the larger ones are going to be the costume books that mm-hmm. are finished hard copies for ambassadors. Um, but the smaller ones are, are sort of no larger than your hand. Yeah. Now, I know uh, you've been really looking at this uh, more from the Habsburg point of view, and, and you were explaining that especially these costume albums and friendship albums are part of Habsburg visual material culture. I mean, th- this is not an unusual thing, and it's sort of brought to Istanbul. But uh, as far as you know, are there are there parallel efforts for producing albums in the Ottoman court? Well, it's an interesting question. So in the 17th century, it really picks up and there is a a very large um, production of Ottoman-made costume albums for an Ottoman audience. Mm -hmm. Um, This is something that in the 16th century is not the case. There are one or two examples of albums that can be dated to the 16th century that do have Ottoman artists working in them. And um, collected... Whether it's collected for an Ottoman patron is is a very difficult um, sort of distinction to make. Um, Most of them are not in Istanbul, so there's you know there's a good chance that um, they were actually made also on the orders of somebody else. Um, But they're 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 complicated objects, so they're they're full of a lot of layers of problems. These these other albums from the 16th century in the 17th century it becomes a very different world of these albums really sort of. Um, becoming a, a widely popular in culture. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a, a French album that. Um, so, so the the Ottomans are, or the the Habsburgs are not the only ones interested in this mm-hmm. sort of world. Uh, there's a very very interesting French album that combines uh, very highly finished um, costume images together with these marbled papers, mm-hmm. um, and that one is also along these same lines, but it's also a bit later. So one thing that, uh, one of the big aspects the of this research is that these albums, how early they are. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, these are the earliest albums of this type 
And in that sense, uh, what's what's interesting about them is that it's early on in the history of costume albums. I mean, the first ones are really developed in the mid um, in the mid sixteenth century. The earliest of these paper collections are also mid sixteenth century, and the earliest examples of uh, Alba Amicorum's these signatures are also in the mid sixteenth century. So this is really sort of three genres that are coming into their own at this time. Well, thank you so much for this uh, fascinating look at very interesting objects, uh, just as they're uh, in this early laboratory for uh, (laughs) (laughs) experiments with uh, friendship albums and costume albums and paper albums. It's very interesting. So thank you. Thank you very much for the opportunity. So I'll remind our listeners that uh, if they want to see the images, and more information about the topic that we discussed today, they can go to the website. That's uh, autumnhistorypodcast.com. That's it for now. And until next time, take care. (laughs) 